Okay, in Psalm chapter 17, I mean Acts chapter 17, which we are next going to go to Psalm 51, I mean, we're going to look at verses 30 and 31 and kind of go over those for a few minutes, and then something big happens here. I mean, every time when you're reading about Paul and he's in Mars, Mars Hill and in Athens, it's a, one thing after another that are wonderful doctrinal lessons, and then there's events that happen, and then we just learn and see the faithfulness of this apostle. So in verse 30 and 31 in Acts 17, we read, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Now let's read the last three verses also. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, here's a reaction, some mocked, and others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, certain men clave unto him and believed among the which was Dionysus, the, Are, the, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And you see the reaction here. We're coming to the close of the chapter here in a while, and basically what happens is, even with all those that are listening, the Epicureans and the Stoics, and we understand right now, don't forget, Paul is by himself, he brings this sermon to a very important conclusion, which is very, very important for any preacher or teacher, to bring a conclusion to the matter that's at hand, which is incredible, and Paul tells them to do something. You see that in verse 31? I mean, verse 30. What is the conclusion? And that's what we're going to be looking at today. What does he tell them to do instead of what they're already doing? What does he tell them that they should be doing? If they want to be right with God, and if they want to do what's right, if they want to have peace and they want to have protection and the curse lifted off of them, which is basically what it is, what does he tell them to do? Anyone? Verse 30. He's, he's, repent. Thank you, Charlie. He says, repent. That might seem pretty standard, and it might seem kind of easy to be thrown at us to say, all right, well, you know, that's what it says in the Bible. But then when you look at what he could have said, and what really happens in even churches today, you can see how this is an incredible, humble statement that Paul is making. He tells them to repent. He didn't tell them, look, Increase the demographic of your church and you need to go after some inner city folk and you can fill up a demographic and get another 40 and 50 people and more money into the church. He didn't say to go ahead and pay for the, for the latest local rock bands to come in in order to get the demographic of the youth and get them into the church. Maybe we should have some yard sales, which went past the, uh, the Catholic church down here in, um, in, in Glen Arm today on Long Green and they're having a big yard sale today, Sunday. They're having a yard sale. And then right next to the yard sale, which is apropos, there's all these amusement rides that are all pulling in for May 5th because they're getting ready to have a great big uh, 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 one of those um, car carnivals they have every year, which like Pastor Olson calls in a lot of churches today, bread and circuses. He didn't say to do any of that. He didn't say to get the latest popular speaker in. He didn't say what you need to do is you need to honor all these sacraments and do all these things that are very works-oriented. He says in one word, to bring this all together, repent. That's very familiar. If you think about the ministries that are in Scripture in the New Testament, that word is extremely important. 
And we're going to see why. So here we just read about how God winked at the ignorance of mankind. We talked about that a little last week. What does this tell us? Does God blink at sin? Does he have patience for those who do not deserve to be forgiven? What is the difference between him blinking at sin or having patience? It means that there will come a time when the Lord will deal with sin. And Pastor Olson has said it a million times. Nobody gets away with anything. <laughs> the funny thing is, is we think that we do, right? We do. Ah, it's all right. You know, I did this, I did that. The Lord will wait. He'll, he'll, he'll forgive me for it. And the biggest, I think one of the biggest traps is when we think that we can live in a sin because eventually when we really, when we enjoy the sin and it comes to fruition and then we start thinking to ourselves, well, if it gets too bad, well, then I'll repent. Then I'll say something to the Lord. I'll say, ah, forgive me, Lord, you know. Sometimes it doesn't happen that way. Sometimes we can go along and do things and people can do things that are pretty horrible and they don't repent. And all of a sudden they're taken off of this earth like that. It happens quick. There's been a lot of weird car accidents, like, like went up on Route 1 several months ago, and things that happen, and you just never know. But we do serve a patient and a long-suffering God. He's incredible. We serve a very patient God. Paul confirms that God is patient when he does not have to be. Somebody look up Romans 15.5. Let me, let me give another statement here, and then you can read that. Romans 15.5. But this does not define our Lord as being lax towards sin. But this is an act of divine justice. When you go to court, no matter how big the trial is, the judge can reserve the right to either make a very, to, to pass a very swift sentence or to take his time so that all the evidence can come in. And some judges are better than others. Some, I mean, I remember going up to Harford County and down to Baltimore when, you know, I was working with Ben early on. And some of the judges, I mean, they were like, you, didn't, you did not want to get in front of some of these guys. judges. They didn't play around. They're good judges. And when they took the evidence, I mean, they had swift, they would have a swift punishment that they would hand down. Other ones would just give probation or kind of drag. But that's up to the judge. And that's a just thing to do. It doesn't make them bad. It only makes it bad when politics change their verdict and they wind up letting guilty people off. That will never happen with the Lord because he's perfectly just. He's not selectively just. And that's very, something very, very important. Romans 15.5, who has that? Perfect. Thank you, Nancy. You see those two words that, you just, that Nancy just read? That is important. The little tiny verse. Patience and consolation. What does that mean? God is long-suffering, long-suffering, and He's a comforter. Consolation means comfort. The Lord has it in His existence, which is eternal, to want to be patient with us, to want to console us, and to have us comfort in our hearts. But it's when we go kicking and screaming and fighting against him. When we have a nation that's doing all kind of horrible things and the Lord's saying, I'm still giving you freedom. I'm still giving you time to repent. Why are you still butchering my babies? Why are you still waving a rainbow flag over the Chicago uh, LGBTQ bill? Why are you doing that when I said not to do it? But he's still, right now, he's still very patient. He's so patient that he's given Ron DeSantis a victory down in Florida because he's trying to do what's right, 
See the long suffering and the comfort? And we could sit here and talk about that. How many times in Scripture was the Lord patient and gave comfort to those that were, that were, that were warring against him? Over and over, Jacob. Jacob is a very good example. Jacob did a lot of bad things. The Lord was patient with him and he loved him. Now, look at the brothers of Joseph, how patient the Lord was with them and how he let them all live long lives when they had done a horrible act against one of his children. Joseph was a chosen wonderful follower of Jesus Christ. And he was a real example of Jesus Christ. And look what they did to him. But that's a, that's a great, great verse that Nancy just read, Patience and Consolation. Well, how, that is a wonderful verse. And Paul brings that together, and he really brings out the essence of what it means for God to wink at sin. People take it as if he winks at it, he blinks at it, he forgets about it, and he lets it go. And that there's not any problem at all with it. That's how people treat it today. Sin doesn't even hardly exist. But it says that he winks at it for the ignorant at this time. But then Paul turns the corner almost in an elliptical fashion here where he has to define exactly what the remedy is. But thank the Lord he does. Repent. He says the remedy here is to repent. God despised the time of pagan idol worship by the Gentiles he did despise this time of ignorance. It was provoking to see his glory given to another idol. And then as an act of forbearance, he did send the prophets. He sent disciples and sent apostles. He sent his own son. And he patiently, he gives us time after time after time after time after time after time after time, after time to repent. What does it say in the Old Testament? you back in Isaiah, this filters all throughout some of the major and the minor prophets. If you honor me, you obey me, I will bless you, I will bless your family, I will bless your cattle, I will bless your food, I will bless the weather, I will send you rain, I will send you snow, I will send you water, and I will not give you a famine. You, you, you disobey me, the Lord says, and you, you defy my law. I will curse everything in your life. And that's what he says. That's his words. See, in, in uh, Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. And Moses does not say, maybe, perhaps, or peradventure, you will hearken unto him. You will, sooner or later, you will hearken unto him. You have to read the theology that's woven in that little verse there. He said, you will hearken to him. What does it say in Philippians? Every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it doesn't matter who it is. You can sit there down through the ages or in our current time. Barack Obama is going to kneel down at the feet of Jesus Christ and he is going to get it. And if he doesn't get saved before that happens, woe be unto him. Nancy Pelosi is going to bow down to Jesus Christ and she is going to confess that he is king. This is coming. Even Joe Biden, if he's even half in his right mind, he's going to confess. He's going to do this. Everybody is going to do it. Moses himself said, they will hearken unto this prophet. And he didn't say, well, they're going to hearken unto Jeremiah. They're, not, they're going to hearken unto Isaiah. They're going to hearken unto Ezekiel. He says, they will hearken unto the prophet. And that prophet is coming. 
He was already there, not in physical form, but, but in he, this is the time in the age of the Lord God Almighty speaking to the prophets audibly. Here God is, in, God the first, see we often forget about the first, the, the very first um, person of the Trinity. That's, that's a bad, I was listening to a message about that the other day, and I think it was a great message. We often think about the second person and the third person, where Christ and the Holy Spirit, but we, had, we tend to kind of sometimes in our psyche, and I know in a lot of messages today that you hear on the radio, they leave out the Old Testament. And that was the presence of the first person of the Godhead who spoke through Christ. And isn't that, it's incredible to see these words come together and Paul brings them together here. God was patient with the Gentiles and he held back his wrath on the Gentiles that he promised them the gospel would come. So can someone look up Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6? Isaiah 42, 6. And read that here in a minute. He did not, the Lord did not punish their idolatries like he did Israel, the Gentiles. Many times the pagan Gentiles, they were victorious in battle and they persisted in their pagan idolatry. He didn't swallow them up and bring the pestilences that he did to Israel. Israel received a lot of hard treatment from the Lord. Whom he loveth, he chasteneth. And now there is a promise that was made. Who has Isaiah 42, 6? Good. The light of the Gentiles. A covenant. This is a promise. And we see all the way back here in Isaiah, this promise is played out in the book of Acts, all the way through it. Peter's going to the Gentiles. Paul's going to the Gentiles. They're going, he's going all throughout the Italian regions, the German, all throughout the Roman Empire. And now they are getting the absolute fruition of what happened to Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, this is true. You can bet on it. There's no doubt about it. There's one thing you need to do. Repent. He says you need to repent. Psalm 50 and 50, 21 says, These things thou hast done, and I kept silence. The Lord kept silent for a while. That thou, thou thoughtest that I was altogether such as one as thyself. He said, you thought you were just like me, right? Like me. But I'm not like that. The Lord says, I'm a just God. Lisi. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Right. So what you're saying is exactly true. You know, this whole thing here, this, this is all about people having to make up stuff um, because we're actually embarrassed about God's judgment because we think he's like us. Right. We, we still want to believe that. And I have to take people back to he's not like us. He's holy and he's just, and his idea of holiness is not ours. That's right. It's something we can't even comprehend. We get a scratching surface in Isaiah chapter 6 where the angel of the seraphim stands there and says, Holy, 
holy, holy to the Lord. And that's just an opening. It's a window to the, the majesty of God. One of the problems we have today, and I've been really, really digging on, on this one topic for the last several weeks, just in my own mind, um, Bible studies and all, is about the inerrancy of Scripture. I've been listening to a series on it, the reliability of it, the authenticity of Scripture, the truth of the Scripture, and I heard something staggering. We talked about it Wednesday night. As of about 15 years ago, there was a real standard poll taken as to how many... I mean, there was no breakdown of this number, and it's very sad that in this number that I'm about to give you, evangelicals were involved in this number. Now, I'm sure it's a lot worse now. 59% of the people that were interviewed did not believe that Scripture is holy and inerrant. They believe it has problems. I talked to some, I mean, I talked to some people in the last couple of weeks asking me questions. We started getting talking about the Bible. And one of them said that because there's grammatical errors in the Bible and punctuation errors, we can't call it holy and inerrant. And once again, I mean, I don't know, we've probably talked about this before, but if you, every one of us were given a pencil and paper and we had to write a paragraph on some topic, a singular topic, we would write that paragraph, and if somebody had to grade it, it would be graded on punctuation, uh, or the authenticity, the content, the literature, the way it's written, but nobody would sit there and write it exactly alike, would they? This is what the problem that I have, and you're probably going to hear this at some point, that the Synoptic Gospels, just, and that's just one of many things that they talk about, the compromising of the authenticity of Scripture, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all contradict themselves. And that's another problem with the inerrancy of Scripture. They contradict themselves. Well, if you have that many people watching what was going on and writing from their perspective, inspired by the Lord, they're not going to write exactly perfectly like the other one did. There's going to be different perspectives. They're all true, but Mark saw something a little bit different than Luke did. Luke saw something a little bit different than Matthew did. But do you sit back and do you say Scripture is wrong and it's not wholly inspired and inerrant because they wrote things a little bit differently? Where in the Ten Commandments does it say, Thou shalt not punctuate incorrectly? It's not a sin. You're not going to punctuate the same way another person does. And my point is, today, you have to ask the question, if the Bible today, and you know I'm right, you know you've heard this, you know it's everywhere, because of all the different renditions of Scripture, you know that the inerrancy of Scripture is being compromised. And what does that mean? There's a really big problem with that. Lisa. Right. 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 
Right. Right. And it was mandated that we listen to them. Then if it was mandated that we listen to them, what does that mean? That we better be paying attention to these words and not critiquing them, but going into the substance of them and learning what repentance is about, what we're learning this morning. Lisey, I'm sorry. Right. These are four different men from four different perspectives, and they should be amazed at how similar it is, how similar um, circumstances and miracles were reported. They, you know, that's what's amazing to me because the other way, uh, what am I trying to say? Witnesses? Witnesses. Yes. Right. 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 Amen. Right. Well, you, there are certain events. That's a great point. And what Lisa said, you bring all that together. There are certain stories in all four of the Gospels that all appear. There's a handful of them. The triumphal entries on one of them. The arraignment of Christ, the kangaroo trial. It's in all four of them. If you take all the technical details, what's the scriptural basis of that? What Paul said, going back to Deuteronomy, let a matter be established by two or more witnesses. And if you take all the details, and if you got up on a great big screen and you put all the details down of all the different Gospels, you're building a case, and every single one of them are coherent, and they make sense. They describe the situation, and they bring it all together. But here you see Paul standing in Athens, and he goes back to the Old Testament, and he goes back to repentance. Now, I believe that there is a really specific event that Paul is pointing to. There are many events that he's pointing to, but there's one that really brings that out, and we're going to be looking at that. But these are very good points. Once we compromise Scripture, then how are we ever going to have the Lordship of Christ conveyed to us and our standard on how to follow our Savior? What happens if Scripture is inerrant? What, I mean, I'm sorry. What happens if Scripture becomes filled with errors? Then where do you have to go for the standard? Think about it. There's an answer for that. Where do you have to go if Scripture is compromised and you, can't, you don't think or feel? That's the biggest problem is everything's become a feeling and not an intelligible thought. Where do you go if you can't go to Scripture? Huh? You have to go to the church. Think about that. 
Think of the Roman Catholic Church. They never wanted anyone to interpret Scripture. You have to go to the church. You have to have man rewrite it and interpret it and regurgitate it the way he thinks about it. Then, now you have killed Scripture and now man becomes the God. And this is what Paul's talking about. He's talking about all the statues and all the gods. Some believed in astrology. Some believed in the energy that's all woven, all the metaphysics, the metaphysical nature of mankind and of the world and in the universe. And they had all these different, no, no two of them really agreed alike. Really, Socrates and Plato, they had a lot of fights over what really was the end, the end game of the universe, what's really going to happen. None of them agreed. But you get, you get ten Bible-believing pastors to go to a conference, and I've been there, and they're going to disagree on certain things, but I'll tell you what, when it comes to the inerrancy of Scripture and the gospel of Jesus Christ, they'll go to their death believing that, and they'll defend that to the death, and many have over the years. There's things Calvin, Calvin and Luther, they disagreed basically really on sacraments, on, 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 on really the, uh, the corporeal and the, humis, the, humanist, the human nature of Christ in the sacraments. <laughs> but ultimately, they believe Christ is God. It's very important. That's good discussion. The Lord did not punish them for their idolatries like He did Israel, the Gentiles. He said, and He kept silent. God is long-suffering to the Gentiles. Paul brings this all together, and he tells the Greeks here who did not believe in a resurrection that even God was patient with them. Paul says, the Lord was patient with me. And he can, pay, pay, he can be patient with you. He spent his time pouring his heart out. And he told them, he said, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I persecuted Jews. I went after the Christian church and I went there and I took Christians and I put them in jail. I killed them. He, was, he said he was ignorant when Jehovah Elohim, who's the great creator and judge of the earth, could have destroyed him. Christ had showed patience to Paul. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Greg, could you read that? Could you find that? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Paul even says this. And more than once, he brought this to light very, very importantly. 1 Timothy 1, 12 and 13. I did it ignorantly. The Lord says, I remember that you were all dust and I had mercy upon you. Why can't we be thankful for that and bloom where we're planted and be happy about that? Why is it that we have to formulate our own idols and we have to prove God wrong all the time? There are so many Bible conferences that all they try to do is talk about the inerrancy of Scripture and the error of it. They don't have any time to give the gospel. They're so tall. They spend every last minute, and I've seen the pamphlets, and I mean, you could take the brochures, and they're stacked to the ceiling in your building, all about critical theory and critical text, and where, you know, the, 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 the syntax and Vaticanus, and they get done all this academic, they don't even talk about the gospel. There are people sitting there who have loved ones dying, that are ready to burn in hell, and they're sitting there talking about who's right and who's wrong, and is God real? 
Is he real? God is real. I mean, I think we should get past that. I mean, yeah, God is very, very real in everything in our lives. And they spend so much time, I can name them, they spend so much time doing this. Where is the, what Nancy read in Romans 15, 5, where is the patience and the consolation of God glorified? And this is what Paul, he talks about repentance, and he's trying to tell them, you are all miserable in your lies. That's what he's telling them. He says, this, does not, this was not a means of letting them go and being rewarded for idolatry. God has withheld His judgment for a period of time. Psalm 838, But He, being full of passion, forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. Yea, many a time turned He His anger away and did not stir up all His wrath, for He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passeth away and cometh not again. The Lord doesn't forget, and He remembers he does not make concessions for our sins, but he's very patient. So with this statement of God's patience towards the Gentiles, what is the dominion mandate that Paul has given them? But now, quote-unquote, in verse 31, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Okay, where do we remember in the New Testament that word being so important. It's very important to remember that two, two figures in Scripture, two examples in Scripture, these were the very first words that came out of their mouth. Praise, praise the Lord. Jesus? And who else? John the Baptist. Perfect. Well, Lisey, can you read Matthew chapter 3, verse 2? And Dave, could you look up Matthew 4, 17? Right there. Go ahead, Dave. Matthew 4, 17. That word is the key that unlocks the doors to heaven. Repenting of our sins. The Lord Jesus Christ... John the Baptist and Paul the Apostle summed this up of all the problems of mankind in the whole world with one word, basically. If you really want to look at it and tear it all apart. They cut to the core. They cut to the chase. And what all three of them were saying was very, very simply. It's not about works. It's not about building your demographic in your church. It's not about gimmicks and entertainment. Selling being the best bookseller. It's not about your, a works-oriented theology. By grace are you saved for, through, through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not of work should any, lest any man should boast. Christ said, and here he was, first of all, John the Baptist is preaching in the wilderness of Judea. What a ministry. It was very barren out there. That was a tough ministry. And he's out there in loincloth. He's out there eating locusts and, he's, and for dessert having honey. And that's all he's eating. He's out there and he wouldn't even, never, he would never go to one of the festivals. He hated parties. And, and John would never do that. You'd never see him showing up at any, any of these big, big Jewish festivals. He was out there giving the gospel. And we are going to learn how Apollos, he comes into play in the next chapter 
And it says he remembers the baptism of John the Baptist and the preaching of John the Baptist. He was affected by the preaching of John the Baptist. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine having heard John the Baptist preach? And if that's not good enough, Jesus Christ comes in and he starts preaching. And he preaches the same thing John the Baptist preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then Paul, he's standing here by himself. Silas and Timothy are still, they're still back in Thessalonica. They come and they meet Paul later in the next chapter. Paul's by himself. and He could have been crucified right there. At the Areopagus, the Parthenon, if you defied their gods, you could have been crucified right then and there. And he says, you need to repent. That's what we need to hear on the Congress floor. We don't need to hear about welfare reform. We don't need to hear about money. We don't need to hear about how many more mansions Nancy Pelosi's going to buy. Somebody's got to stand there and say, you need to repent. You have angered and you have infuriated God. And that's what it's all about. Repent. Can you see that? Here, Christ himself, these were the first words of Christ when he left Nazareth and he went to Capernaum, he went through Zabulon and Nephilim beyond Jordan to Galilee. Matthew 4, 17, Jesus began to preach as Dave read and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? We're all one breath away from heaven or hell. We're one breath away from it. Sooner or later, it's coming. And are we repenting? Matthew Henry in this very passage says, The charge God gave to the Gentile word by the gospel, which he now sent among them, he now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, to change their mind on their way, to be ashamed of their folly and to act more wisely, to break off the worship of idols and bind themselves to the worship of the true God. Nay, it is to turn with sorrow and shame from every sin and with cheerfulness and resolution to every duty. This is God's command. And so we see here in verse 31, God has called all men to repent, to make the faithful journey as Christians, like as Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. How many remember Pilgrim's Progress here? And Christian, remember? And Lisa? Yeah, man, we, we've, we've seen through the Pilgrim's Progress how Christian has every landmine and every bomb thrown at him as he's going to that celestial city and he's, and he's begging the Lord to keep him from temptation. He sees all these things come along and his objective in this world is knowing that it is not his home. He's just a passing through and he's here to honor the Lord God Almighty. And, that's part, and part of that is what Paul's telling, saying here in Athens to repent. Remember how pilgrim, he staves off the temptations, which can only be done by true repentance, which leads the unrepentant sinner to repent and turn away from foolishness, to cast away false idol worship and joyfully run to obedient worship to the true and living God. All men are commanded to repent. The prophets commissioned the fallen Israel to beg for forgiveness and to repent. The apostles are now spreading the gospel into all the world and preaching repentance. Repentance. We're going to take a little turn here. Greg.
that they always, most people I've met that are not Christians really think that it's not a sin problem. They have. They really don't believe that. Right. They think, you know, I haven't done a lot of bad things. I've done a lot of good things. Like that balancing it out back and forth. Right. So they don't own it. They don't own the sin problem. Right. It's basically a balancing act where um, I've done more good than evil. Right? That's a great point, Greg. It's a very, very good point because today, basically, in therapy sessions, I lived through this with a family member. Therapy sessions, no matter whether it's drugs, no matter whether it's other horrible sins, they are a victim of it. They are not responsible for it, right? They're not responsible for it. They're not, they're not there to be told that it's a sin, that it's a problem with the darkness and the blackness of your heart. It's a societal problem. It's community conscience, and you fell victim to it, and it's really not unusual. Lisey. Right. Right. Yeah, there's always an excuse. There's always a way to point the finger and say they did this. I said, well, right now with this guy that that, that pre- pretending to be the president, everything that's happening, six dollars a gallon, everything. Oh, it's Ukraine's fault. It's Russia's fault. It's Putin's fault. It's Trump's fault. He doesn't own anything, and he hasn't done anything right since day one. He hasn't done anything right in forty-nine years. So why would he start now? And so every, it's always everybody else's fault. Not the fact that he can't even see his way out of any situation to handle it with responsibility. But we see here that there is a problem that Paul has brought up. And he's telling those, the Epicureans and the Stoics, you've got a problem. You need a Savior. And you need to repent. If you don't have a Savior, then you will not be saved. If you do not repent, you will not be forgiven of your sins. Does anybody remember? And there are many examples. But a real prime example in the Old Testament of repentance? Let me give you a hint. Repentance unto life. Does anybody know what that goes back to? And that's the next, we're going to be going out of the New Testament to the Old Testament for this week and next week, the rest of this class and next week. Do you think that King David owned his sin, or did he blame it in the final analysis on everything around him? He tried to for a little bit, but ultimately, what did he think about his sin with Bathsheba? Psalm 51. Let's go to Psalm 51. Now, back in about uh, 13 years ago, we did a series here in the Sunday school class in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12 about the actual details of the sins that David had after all these wonderful years of fellowship with Christ, all going all the way back before Goliath, he fell into this horrible trap of sin. 
Repentance unto life came through this, and basically we did talk about a little bit Psalm 51 towards the end of that series, and it lasted for a couple of years. Psalm 51 is an absolute perfect prayer. It is a perfect prayer on how we must own our sin, and we must go to the Lord. And what does David say here? And we're gonna, we've, I've got some really good notes and some things that we can t- discuss. All of us can discuss them, and if you have anything to say, please speak up. In Psalm 51, there are 19 verses. Let's do it like this. Jim, why don't you read verses 1 through 6 in Psalm 51? Jacob, why don't you read verses 7 to 13? Okay? And can I ask Charlie, could you read verses 14 to 19? Okay? Thank you, Jim. Go ahead, Jacob. Good, Charlie. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jacob. Thank you, Charlie. You know, it's amazing how these penitential psalms are filled with personal pronouns. And the reason why they're filled with personal pronouns from David is he takes the responsibility for the sin. Repentance unto life is the title of this, basically the title of this subject of repentance. And it brings us here to Psalm 51. This was a very unique psalm. 
as it is in the King James Version reveals to us, which is the version Calvin and Henry taught and preached from a specific occasion in the life of King David. This passage takes us into the mind of King David and reveals the sorrow in his most inner thoughts, and we see why he is a man after God's own heart. And our Lord, through His Word this week, is teaching us this occasion where David greatly sinned and he repented. And we're going to have to end here in a minute, but I want to read these two verses that led up to this, and we're going to really dig hard next week. 2 Samuel chapter 11, 4, And David sent messengers and took her, Bathsheba, and she came into him and he lay with her. That was the sin. And then we go to 2 Samuel 12, 1, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him. Bathsheba came unto David. That was the sin. Nathan came unto David. And that was the pathway for repentance. This is called repentance unto life. Pastor. Right. Amen. Amen. And that goes back to the Word of God being the standard. Okay, we're going to finish there. And we're going to get moving here. And um, I think this is going to be very fascinating next week. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee, Lord, for these words. Thank Thee for our talk together and our correspondence this morning. We thank Thee so much for these verses and for this lesson that to repent is a wonderful blessing that Thou wouldst allow us to even have the opportunity to repent. Thou has no obligation to have us to repent. Thou could have destroyed all of us, and we all could be very well burning in hell. But because of Thy wonderful pleasure, because of Thy wonderful patience with us, knowing that we are dust, Thou hast been merciful with us, and that we can repent of our sins. And we know where to go with our guilt through the blood of Jesus Christ, who Thou hast died for us to wash away our sins. Bless us, and I pray that Thou would bless our fellowship and our learning from Scripture as Pastor Coleman gives the gospel this morning. And as we hear it, I pray that we'll hide it in our hearts so that we might not sin against Thee. Son, and we pray. Amen.